0: It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 106, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. Josh Volk is, most recently, the author of Compact Farms, a new illustrated guide for anyone dreaming of starting, expanding, or perfecting a profitable farm enterprise on five acres or less. Compact Farms includes in-depth interviews with 15 small farms about the systems and tools that make them tick. With over 25 years of experience working on and managing small farms around the country, Josh currently works part-time at Coley Neighborhood Farm in Portland, Oregon, as well as providing consulting to farmers, presenting workshops at agricultural conferences, and writing. In this episode, Josh provides insights into what makes a small farm work. We discuss the importance of automation and good systems, and good systems to manage the automation. Josh also shares his perspective on how limiting hours and scale helps to increase focus and productivity, as well as avoiding burnout. We also discuss Josh's experiences as a part-time farmer, his own slow hand farm where he farmed without any fossil fuel equipment, and his comprehensive planning and record-keeping systems. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is generously supported by Vermont Compost Company, founded by organic crop growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high-quality compost and compost-based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production, vermontcompost.com. And by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are versatile, maneuverable in tight spaces, lightweight for less compaction, and easy to maintain and repair on the farm. Gear-driven and built to last for decades of dependable service, bcsamerica.com. And by Farm Commons. Strong, resilient, sustainable farm businesses are built on a solid legal foundation. Farm Commons provides practical legal resources to help farmers understand and respond to how the law affects them. Free guides and tutorials available online at farmcommons.org. Josh Volk, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Thanks for having me, Chris. Great to be here. It's so great you could join us. So, I'd like to start out by just having you kind of situate us. I mean, normally I would I would say, "Hey, you know, tell us about your farm and where you're located." But I know that you've got I mean, you've got your fingers in a lot of different things right now. So I'm just gonna gonna throw that out there, kind of give us a where you are in in time and space, and then we'll kind of work our way out from there.
1: Yeah, so that's you know that question of what I do is uh, one of those dinner party questions that I always have a really hard time answering because there's so many different little pieces and they are all connected from the farming world, um, I, my, the thing that really grounds me, um, you know, in more ways than one would be actually doing production farming. And so right now I'm doing that on a very small scale. Um, Lohan farm was the name that I used in the past and that was kind of my own model. And then that moved, uh, that got folded into another project and for the last, uh, season and then this upcoming season, I'm going to actually be working with a friend of mine uh, Matt Gordon who has a small farm called Tully Neighborhood Farm uh, and he and I do that as a part-time project so that we both can do other things um, in our spare time. Um, and so what I do for the rest of that time is I do consulting and that, that's kind of a catch-all phrase that I use for a bunch of different things that I do. So some of that is consulting with uh, small other small farms. Some of it is working with municipalities or um or, or Oregon State University kind of doing contract work um, for some research projects and, and those types of things um, and then I have a uh, another side project which is developing some small farm tools that's called farm hand cart um, and then I also you know have a, have a garden and kind of do some experimental stuff in my backyard uh living in town so that's most of it oh and then there's the writing. So writing and teaching and, and speaking, which all kind of falls in, I, I, you know, I put that under the consulting, um, business. Um, so it falls into that as well. So lots and lots and lots of different pieces.
0: Just so that we're clear on where you actually are geographically, you're in Portland, Oregon, right?
1: Yeah. I, I live just inside the city limits, kind of the far northwest, uh, neighborhood as you can. And I live, uh, Portland has this amazing, uh urban growth boundary, and then uh the state of Oregon has really great land use planning uh, It's not perfect, but it's allowed a lot of farmland to continue to exist very close to the urban core and so the reason I live in that part of Portland is I used to farm just a few miles away on this island that's just on the other side of the river from Portland um, but now I actually farm inside portland and i and I live in Portland as well
0: so sure. Let's talk about the farm a little bit, Coley Neighborhood Farm. Uh, tell us about that operation.
1: So Coley Neighborhood Farm uh, is a project that uh, a friend of mine, Matt Gordon, started, and he started it with another friend of his, Michael, and um, I actually wrote about it in my, in my book, so there's, there's more details on it, but essentially it's um, <clears throat> an empty lot that um, used to have a house on it, and that was, that's owned by a church. And it's on a dead-end street, so there's not really any traffic that goes by. And it backs up against the back of – the church has a school, and then there's playing fields behind the school, and then the lot is behind that. And the dead-end road is kind of on the other side of that. So it's this weird island that that doesn't see a lot of um, car traffic, but people do tend to to use it as a cut-through in the neighborhood for walking their dogs or whatever. Um, even though there's a fence, somebody's cut a hole in the fence. So everybody needs to do the hole in the fence. Um, so we have about, it's about a three quarter acre lot. And then um, we're cultivating about a half an acre of that lot. And um, it's done, the marketing has been different, uh, different years. Um, but last year it was CSA and we did restaurant sales and just a little bit of farmers market. Um, and that was kind of a community farmers market. So we weren't actually having to be at the stand. We were just contributing um, produce to that. Um, this coming year, the plan is to do to do all CSA, and maybe um, if we have some excess, we might go back and do the market and restaurant a little bit, but the main focus is, is a CSA. And we're doing about, uh, I guess, the plan for this year, last year we did 52 shares. This coming year, we'll do 60 shares to kind of make up the, the income gap, and we We've changed the shares slightly this year to to change the the mix as well. Uh, and then it's done. Uh, we, we are it's done as a part time project, so we're just working two days a week, uh, Mondays and Thursdays. Um, Matt does have a he lives just down the street from that lot, and he has a greenhouse in his yard. He has kind of an uh, oversized lot that he lives on, um, and so we do the propagation out of that greenhouse. Um, and he spent a little bit of extra time during the week taking care of the greenhouse starts. Um, but then really we're just out in the field those, those two days a week and, um, uh, and working with uh, the two of us for most of the season. And then the peak season, we, um, yeah. last year we worked with one other person and then hired in other people occasionally.
0: So both of you are working part time on the operation. Can you talk a little bit more about how that works? I mean, I, it's actually something that I never did i always I was always full time on the farm uh just i think because of the nature of how I got started farming. How do you make a part time farm work and especially when there's two of you, yeah. that just seems hard
1: yeah so, so actually it's it, it's not as hard as it seems um, and I started out full time farming um when I started farming so i um I worked um on a number of different farms. Um, in California, in, uh, here in Oregon, um, and then a little bit down in the Southwest and on the East Coast as well. Um, before leaving a farm that I'd been at for seven years, which was here in Oregon. And actually the first time I, I started working part time. Well, I stepped back for just a second. <clears throat> years ago, I read this article in growing, or not an article, it was a letter, but running for market. Um, which I am a huge fan of, and I have been reading for years. Uh, they used to publish letters from the readers um, many years ago. And there was a letter from a reader, which is kind of a guy who was, I don't know who it was, I don't remember anymore, but I definitely remember the content of the letter. And he was a little bit upset because um, people have this tendency to be like, oh, well, if you're not a full time farmer, you're not a serious farmer. That's not real farming. And he was like, listen, I used to be a full-time farmer and now I'm a part-time farmer and I'm just as serious as I was when I was full-time. Um, but I find a lot more balance doing it part-time and it, you know, fits in with the other things that I'm doing. And so that kind of stuck in my head and I had that idea. I was like, Oh, that's, that's a good point. You know, I shouldn't think that just because somebody, cause I had that same tendency. you know, it's like, Oh, if you're not farming full-time, you're not a serious farmer. Um, but I, I thought about it. And then when I left this farm that I'd been working on for seven years, um, This other farm contacted me, and they had just had somebody leave in the middle of the season, and the guy that was running it by himself, and he didn't really know what he was doing, and uh, had just gotten started, and and um, and so this uh, the owner of the the farm it was a farm that was connected to a restaurant, and really the the restaurant owners lived on this piece of land, and one of the chefs said, oh, I'll farm the land for you, and um, and then that didn't really work out, so. Um, so in the middle of the season, the restaurant owner called and he was like, uh, this, you know, we've got this crazy situation. We don't know what's happening. Can you come and help us out? And so I went up there and I said, and it was a small, they only had, I think, a half an acre, or maybe an acre in production at that point. Um, and um, I said, well, this isn't a big enough project for me to do full time. And I don't really want to be doing something full time right now. Um, so I'm just going to do this part time. Um, and it, it was big enough that I, I only wanted to work on it two days a week, but it really needed four days a week. And so I just decided I would hire somebody else to work with me those two days a week. Um, and that would make the labor work out. And it ended up being really fantastic. Um, because, I mean, there were certain things where I had to automate them and I just had to trust the automation, like with a uh, propagation house. like We did all of our propagation for ourselves, but we had to automate the propagation house because obviously we were going to be up there every single day. And so we just had to trust that the water was going to water the way that we did. We only had two days a week to figure that out. So we automated the things that we had to automate. Um the, uh, my irrigation schedule here in Oregon had always been to, at most, irrigate two days a week anyway. We don't have any rain during the week. We're famous for rain, but we don't have any rain during the summer, <laughs> during the growing season. So we do have to irrigate. And um, I found that irrigating two days a week was, was enough. Um, so we would have to run all of our irrigation on the days that we were there. We did all of our harvest, So we'd basically start out the day doing all the harvest. Um, and then we would do, you know, any planting or weeding or anything else we needed to do Um, in the afternoon. We'd be running irrigation all day long, and then we would go home, and we would have a day or two doing something else, and then we would come back to the farm a couple days later, and uh, we'd be really excited about being back at the farm because we missed it for those few days and um, hadn't been around, and and the conversation out in the field wasn't all about It wasn't just all about what was happening on the farm and and how crazy things were. were. It was also about um, what did we do with our other few days during the week. Um, And and that brought a lot of energy to the farm. And so it ended up being this very positive experience. And basically, ever since then, uh, I've been farming part-time. So that was in 2008. So that would have been, what, uh, eight years ago, nine years ago, something like that. Um, and for me, it's worked out really well. It's, it's been a really fantastic balance. So like I said, every, everything that I do is, is still farm related. The stuff that I'm doing in my other hours are farm related, but it's not the production stuff. So I, I really focus hard on the production stuff on those few days a week that I'm out on the farm. Um, and then I'm doing other things on the other days a week. And, um, and I kind of get a little bit of a break. And I found that The burnout that used to happen in August, um, you know, end of July, August, September would be really hard when I'm farming full-time. just not there anymore, Um, so I can go the full season, and um, it's totally no problem at all, and the energy stays much higher. So, I've really enjoyed
0: part-time farming. Now, in your book, well, your book's called Compact Farms, and and... Cully uh, Neighborhood Farm is one of them that's featured in the book. I think you mentioned that. I mean, you interviewed, I think, a dozen farmers. Um, how many of them are part-time?
1: So I think there's, um, if I remember right, including my farm, there's 15 farms in the book. Um, Cully <clears throat> Neighborhood Farm and Flohan Farm. So I, I write about my uh, my farm when I was just doing it solo. Um, I write about Flohan Farm. Uh, those two are part-time farms. And actually, Matt, has uh, he did do the farm full-time for a little bit. He actually started out with me at that farm that I was mentioning that I started part-time at. That was called Skyline Farm. Um, And I hired Skyline Farm, so I knew him from there. And then he went down and started this other project called Kali Neighborhood Farm. Um, So uh, He's gone back and forth between doing that part-time and full-time, but he's part-time now. Um, other than that, everybody else is full-time. So the rest of the examples in in that book are all full-time and, um, and there's a wide range. So, so I wanted to, um, try to show that there's not just one way that people are able to make these really small farms work, that there's lots and lots of different ways that they work. So there's the part-time examples, myself and, and Matt, and then there's full-time, you know, everybody else is full-time. There's, uh, You know everybody's in the small range of uh, five acres or less, but some of those are under an acre, and some of them are kind of pushing. You know, maybe if you took into account all the space that they're using, they're actually over five acres. Um, And then uh, there's examples in that book that are farms that are over thirty years old, and there's examples of farms that have just been starting out in the last few years. Um, There's urban. There's a rooftop farm, Brooklyn Grange, who I think has been around for, I don't know, well, at this point, it's a little bit longer than when I first talked to them a couple of years ago, Um, but they had been around for a few years. Um, And then there's folks that are out in the middle of nowhere, uh, uh, you know, doing it very rural. So lots and lots of different examples and all across the country. And I was thinking that there wasn't anybody too far south, but I actually do have a farm in Hawaii in the book also, so that's about as far south in the u s as he had and all the way up to maine, so really 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 wide range uh of different farms um
0: in the book Did you find anything that that the compact farms all had in common other than being compact farms
1: <laughs> you know i <clears throat> I think there are a lot of commonalities um but I don't know that there are commonalities across the board. Um, I I think the one other thing that might be co- uh, come to close to being common besides just being small is that they all are using direct marketing, um, some form of direct marketing as their primary outlet. Um, that's not to say there aren't examples in the book who are trying to do some form of wholesale as well. Um, but the direct marketing where you can kind of capture more of those dollars per space um, is, is another commonality. And that's just a function of if you're small, you don't have a choice. You really do need to pull as much uh, out of the spaces as you can. Um, so that's a, a limit that you kind of set for yourself or the, or the space that's for you.
0: And are the farms that you visited... Economically viable. I mean, are, they, are these people that are making a profit and being able to put money towards retirement? I mean, I know some of them are. Some of them we've had on the show, but would you say that 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 was a theme, or did you see people struggling?
1: Yeah. So that no, that that was something that we, I very intentionally tried to pick farms that I felt were successful in some way, and I wanted them to be economically viable. Now, now we can talk about what economically viable. Means. Because I think that that that's a that's a very loose term.
0: It's it's a very loaded term, I would say. As well as yeah, being loose, loaded
1: is is another is another word you could use for it. So, um, uh, I think that everybody is making it work. Um, everybody in there there aren't farm examples in there where people were, uh, you know, with the exception of you know, kind of intentionally deciding I'm going to be part time. Uh, and do other things on the other side of it. There aren't farms in there where uh, people weren't full-time at the point that I was writing about them um, and making enough money from the farm itself to, to do that. Um, the uh, the, the, um, the definition of success, I do uh, address that a little bit in the book. And I think, you know, talking to all these different farms, um, You know, everybody has a slightly different definition of what success means specifically for them on their farm. Um, But I think for, uh, you know, probably across the board, um, one of those pieces of success for people is that they're doing something that they love to do and that they um, are able to sustain that. And so, you know, in the sense that it's, it's economically viable in the sense that they are able to what they're doing with the amount of money that they are bringing in. Um, and they've, you know, some, some of them might not be as economically successful as um, somebody would say, oh, well, they're not making, you know, minim- maybe they're not making minimum wage. I don't, I'm, I'm not sure I didn't get those numbers from everybody. But even if you're not making minimum wage, if you're making enough that you personally are comfortable living on, you're, as a business owner, you're allowed to make less than minimum wage, which is kind of this funny thing. Um, and then, you, you know, if you want to get into, you know, all the, the, uh, uh, business terminology, you know, even as a business owner, it's very complicated what you're making in terms of your income, um, and because you're also building assets and, and, uh, uh, you know, you have this business that you own as well. So that's, a, that's kind of a funny piece when you're a sole proprietor, particularly your LLC.
0: What about from a production methods standpoint? Uh, I mean, I noticed that you had, I mean, you interviewed people like JM, Fortier, and Elliot Coleman, who do things very, very intensively. Um, I think you interviewed some other people that that don't follow those same methods, uh, you know, super intensive production models. Uh, Did you find that, that there was, were any common themes on the production side of things from how people were going about producing the crops?
1: I I interviewed, uh, I mean, part of the reason I wanted to have JM and, and Elliot Coleman in there uh, was because uh, I felt like that, that would provide a nice baseline. And um there's a range I think that everybody in some sense is trying to do um, is trying to be fairly intensive, maybe not intensive to the same level that they are are being intensive um but it was quite common for folks to i mean pretty much everybody that i you know I'm just thinking off the top of my head here, but I think pretty much everybody is on a bed system um not everybody is running I was the only example in the book. Um, my farm, when I was running Slowhand Farm, it was completely worked by hand. So I, there was no, uh, there wasn't even a rototiller, um, uh, no internal combustion um, out in the field. Um, so it was all all hand method. Everybody else in the book is, is well, that's not true. Brooklyn Grange also was not doing that, but they're rooftop farms, so that was a little bit different there also. Um, other than that, everybody else is using internal combustion and, and kind of on a bed system. So no row cropping, nothing like that. Um, and that bed system, I think is a commonality. And I think that, you know, just makes things more simple. Um, I didn't have, unfortunately, I I hate to burst everybody's bubble, but I didn't have a travel budget with this. And so I didn't get to go and actually see all of the farms in the book. And, um, I was a little disappointed about that. I was really hoping I would get to go and see all the, the farms. So I had to do some of these through telephone interviews, kind of like you're doing telephone uh, interviews with all these farmers. And and, uh, and actually, it's, it's, it's been fun for me because there's a lot of overlap between uh, your interviews and kind of what I was writing about. And uh, part of why I wrote, wrote the book and um, was interested in working on the project is I just love hearing stories about, you know, how does everybody else do it? So to get back to your question about commonality, I think, you know, just being on that bedside system is something. And I think, you know, everybody is really trying to do it fairly intensively. Um, so they, and that's just something that you pretty much have to do in order to make enough money off of that small of a space. You don't really have a choice there.
0: What kind of a range did you see for numbers on per acre production? i
1: I didn't get numbers from everybody, so not everybody was willing to share that with me um and the there I give a couple of examples in the book of dollars per acre um, and interestingly we we were all within i think a fairly close range so um i I would say that I heard numbers that were as high as two hundred thousand an acre. Um, but I think that is really pushing the extreme upper edge, and I don't know how consistent that is. Um, the range that I saw that was more typical, um, or that I was hearing that was more typical, and this is also the range that I fall into, um, is kind of the, the probably 55,000, 60,000 to 75,000, 80,000 range per acre. Um, so, you know, and, and I think when I was running my own numbers, I I actually was calculating them at about 60,000 an acre. Um, and that was without, I I was running intensively in the, in the grand scheme of things, but I wasn't running as intensively as I felt like I would be able to once the, the farm was, was, uh, more established. So, it, you know, it's a lot more than when I was working on bigger, uh, bigger farms. I feel like when I was working on larger farms, um, we were still doing uh, somewhere between 15 and 25, maybe up to 30,000 an acre. But we're, you know, doubling that on these really small, small scale operations.
0: One of the things I love about farming is, is you've got some, there's a lot to think about. You know in terms of of production and and the ways of actually going about you know engaging with the soil, but there's also this you know there's also the management element and and did you see ways that that these farms were similar in how they were managing or or making decisions on the farm you know i think
1: uh the the one thing I would say. That I and I might have I might have a bias towards this because I'm a big planner but i but I think there was a lot of thought and planning that went into all these farms and um and I think on the on the really small farm in particular, you really have to be on top of um analyzing what has just happened um how to improve that in the future, and there's there's just not much cushion. Um and I guess in no in every kind of farming it's probably the same. There's not much cushion for um for making big mistakes um and recovering from those um but if you analyze what you're doing and then turn that into a plan, all these farms that I was talking to um they were all doing a lot of planning and you know kind of putting in place what is it that we're going to to have in the ground at a particular point in time. Spending, spending the winters, um, really getting that in. Although I, I just saying that spending the winters thing, I, I have to mention there's one farm who's a friend of mine in the book, and this was a great example of you know thinking a different way and how there are all these different examples out there. He actually does his planting later in the season, and then he takes the summer off, not the full summer, but then he takes the spring off, um, starts planting in the summer, and doesn't start harvesting until... Um, end of October, beginning of November, and then harvest through the winter. So, um, the schedule is not the same for everybody, but everybody is, you know, putting a lot of time and effort into planning, um, and then kind of tracking what they're doing and then analyzing, you know, how that season went and rolling that information back over into how can I make it better the next year. Um, and when I would ask, you know, these farmers for, um, details on, you know, well, how do you do this? Um, they all had, you know, it was like, okay, let me go back and look at my records. Some of them were really great and actually sent me um, their record sheets, how they were doing this stuff. So I, I was really impressed with the, with the level of planning that went into a lot of these operations.
0: Because you and I are birds of a feather when it comes to this planning thing, I can just am- and, and the record keeping, I can just imagine your glee when you got Copies of farms <laughs> records. It's like Christmas. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And I and I'm imagining that the that that planning took a lot of different forms. Um, you know, spreadsheets, paper based. Was anybody using anything that was particularly interesting to you from a planning perspective?
1: You know, I I don't. I, nobody was using anything particularly high tech. Um, I use Excel for all my planning. Um, and I have some pretty what I think are fairly sophisticated spreadsheets for, um, you know, kind of automating some of the route calculations that you have to, to do all the time. Um, but a lot of the planning was just on paper. A lot of the record keeping was just on paper. Um, I, one of the, one of the, uh, farms in there, um, w- one of my favorites, uh, um, Cook's garden in, uh, Ohio, and um, Stephen uh, didn- doesn't even do email. And so I, I had to talk to him on the phone. Um, and if I ever email uh, with them, his wife always does the email with me. So, um, you know, and, and he was probably, he probably had one of the most sophisticated, uh, he's been doing it since uh, the early 80s. Um, and he probably had one of the most sophisticated, cleanest uh, looking layouts that I that I saw in the entire book. And he's definitely doing that all on paper. So um, another thing that I thought was wonderful about about Stephen was he had said that he told me that he went to um, uh, Jam's workshop um, just a couple of years ago, and uh, he was excited because he was he had all kinds of new ideas after going to Jam's workshop. So I, I love the way everybody is sharing information and and uh, and still getting ideas even after you know thirty plus years of of uh, running running a farm.
0: I think it takes a certain level of humility to be able to go, you know, after you've been farming that long and say there's there is still something to learn.
1: Oh, absolutely. And, you know, this is something I've worked with a lot of different farmers and uh, and I've been very fortunate to have some incredible mentors. Um, and, uh, I, you know, Michael Abelman has been one of my mentors and I have conversations with him all the time about. Uh, Because I recognize this happening and he tells me it only gets worse as as you get further into it. uh, You know, it's like when I first started out, I thought I knew everything. And the more I get into this, the more I realize I don't know. Um, And, uh, you know, Michael's a few years further into it than I am. So I'm just expecting it to get even worse. And I'll realize how much I don't, you know, don't know that I don't even know right now um so i and i I found that across across the board. It seemed like the guys that had been in it for longer and and women that uh, actually the book i think ended up being a 50 mix of uh men and women that were farming and and that was not i I, I was really happy to do that, but I didn't actually even have to work to do that but all all these folks are very humble and're very willing to share information and we're very interested to to get information back from from other farms as well.
0: And, of course, you were gathering this information at the same time that you were farming at Coley Neighborhood Farm. What did you take from people in the book and steal for your own use?
1: Yeah, actually, I read the book. Um, the majority of the book got written um, before I was working with Cully Neighborhood Farm. So it was kind of in the in the last season that I was connected to our table uh, cooperative, which was the farm that absorbed Slohan Farm. Um, and so I was kind of on my way out of, of that farm at the point that I was, um, uh, really collecting the bulk of the information for the book. And, and those two things kind of coincided a bit also because I, uh, the book was a lot of work. <laughs> I, I didn't realize how much work it was going to be to, to write a book. And, uh, it was, it definitely took a lot of time. Um so I didn't have the opportunity to to fold things in right away but I think I kind of needed to process that information a little bit. Um we at Cully Neighborhood Farm um you know since I've written the book we have actually been experimenting a lot with um uh with JM's techniques and and uh trying out tarps and and failing with tarps in some situations and and having occasional successes were you uh, kind of see the potential for that, um, and also um, Matt decided to change around his CCS setup based on uh, JM's um, recommendations, and so we've been playing with that as well. Um, but I've, you know, I've also been collecting, I've been visiting farms and touring farms uh, ever since the beginning. I mean, this is something that I just have been super interested in since I started farming was how do people do all this stuff and so um you know it's hard for me to separate out you know w- which of these things came from the book specifically and, uh, you know a lot of that stuff is just refinement of you know little little tweaks to things that i've been developing and in, in, you know on my own farm and on farms that i worked on before that for for many many years
0: so i'd like to dig in a little bit more about holy neighborhood farm um I mean, you you said you guys are doing about a half acre of production. Uh, you mentioned that you've got a BCS involved in it. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about, about how that farm's laid out and the production techniques that you're using there?
1: Yeah, actually, uh, um, Collie Neighborhood Farm is very similar in some ways, uh, as I just mentioned, to, to JM's farm, but I might go the, – the farm – it was more my own model that I might go back and talk about would be the slow hand farm techniques. Um, because I think those are a little bit more different. Um, and, uh, you know, that was kind of more the expression of what the way that I was doing it. So I call a neighborhood farm. I work for Matt and, um, he definitely consults with me and, you know, kind of uses me as a consultant in some ways. Um, to help make decisions around the farm, and so I have input there, but I try to largely leave that to him because it really is his business, and um, and I don't have a long-term stake in it at this point. Um, but Slowhand Farm was my opportunity, so I, I left. I was working at a farm called Savvy Island Organics. Uh, and I was there for uh, seven years as uh, basically the field manager, so kind of doing the doing a lot of the production end of things, um, and up through harvest. Um, and, uh, I left that farm because I wanted to start my own thing and I had gotten started out, uh, I got started out in farming, thinking about urban agriculture and so urban agriculture was kind of what got me interested. And there was a guy, when I was first starting out in urban agriculture, there was this guy Jack Smith and he had an organization called the urban agriculture network uh i which was based in washington d c and I happened to be in washington d c and this was back in the days before um people looked things up on the internet searching for things and so I had this great big book of agricultural resources I don't know where I got this book or uh, where it came from um but his organization was listed in this book, and I just cold called him and it turns out he lived about a mile away from where I live, and he said. You know, I, I don't really have any work for you in urban agriculture. I work on international urban agriculture. I don't work on domestic urban agriculture. But I'd be happy to get together with you and, and uh, maybe um, talk about uh, urban agriculture. And I didn't realize who he was, but uh, he, he had been around for a long time. He's written uh, books on urban agriculture. Um, he was, I think he has a planning background. Um, he actually died a few years ago. Um, but, um, at the time he was super generous and got, we got together for breakfast and his advice to me was to go and learn farming from farmers and then bring that back to urban spaces. And I was a city kid. I grew up basically in, in small towns and cities and I didn't have any farming experience. Um, gardens were my reference point. And he said, you know, that's, the, that's basically what happens in urban agriculture in the U.S. is it's all gardeners um, trying to make these little urban agriculture projects, and they're approaching it from a gardening viewpoint. And what happens in international urban agriculture projects is there's this migration of farmers into the cities, and then they have the farming background, and they start urban agriculture projects in the, in the cities. And he was working in, in Africa and Asia primarily. Um, so I took that advice and I went and, and started working on other farms. But at the same time, um, I had uh, taken some workshops with John Jevons and his book, How to Grow More Vegetables, was kind of one of the really early inspirations for me. And so I always had this idea that uh, after I went and learned from the farmers, I was going to come back to um, urban agriculture and I was going to use. Uh, the biointensive methods, the hand scale methods. And so when I um, started Slowhand Farm, um, that was my opportunity to get back to these hand scale methods. I actually wasn't doing it in the town, I was uh, out on Savi Island, the same, the same island that is just outside of Portland, Oregon. Um, but I was on a very small piece of ground and I was just um, doing it part time and I, I wanted to see could I make it work financially um, doing everything without a tractor because I had been using a tractor for the the previous, uh, I think at that point, I'd been farming for about um, 12 or 13 years. Um, And uh, it would have been about 10 years at that point, 10 or or 11 years. So could I take all this tractor scale knowledge and kind of just knowledge of plants and, uh, you know, apply that back to biointensive. And so it was a little bit of a mix. Uh, bio-intensive, kind of tempered with some of the the realities of what I had learned for the particular climate and soils and everything else that I was in at that point.
0: So from the time that you spent on the farms and trying to translate that into urban agriculture, what were some of the things that you brought back and applied?
1: Well, one of the things I've realized in in, um, subsequent years is that most of the farmers that I went and worked with Actually, were essentially first generation farmers, meaning they had they had uh, gotten themselves into farming after essentially growing up urban. But I didn't really realize that at the time, so I don't know how, you know that, you know I probably wasn't getting quite what Jack was telling me to get. But I think part of his point, or at least the point that I think that he was trying to make, is that the, there's this difference between just gardening in market gardening or small-scale farming, which is that you you don't just have to figure out how to grow something. That's the, the first step is knowing how to grow it. And then the second step is figuring out how to sell it. And then you also have to figure out not just how to grow it, but how to grow it very efficiently so that you can make money selling it. Um, because if you can grow it, but you can't do it efficiently, even if you can sell it, you're not going to make any money. Um, And if you can't sell it, you're not going to make any, you're obviously not going to make any money because money has to come from somewhere. So it's kind of the, you know, the combination of those three factors. And I think that is probably the biggest thing that I learned in farming was just that you really have to pay attention to all three of those things. You can't just pay attention to, to, you know, how am I going to grow this or you know, how am I going to sell it? You have to, you have to incorporate all at the same time. Um, So, you know, it wasn't necessarily production stuff uh, that I think was the most important piece. I think it was more just that uh, attitude of, okay, I have to concentrate on the important things and the important things are, you know, what can I sell? How can I produce this? And how can I do that efficiently? I did learn a lot of production though. So the big benefit, I think of starting out time farming, and I think that something you wouldn't get if you just started out part-time farming is, you know, it's five days a week or six days a week or seven days a week of learning as opposed to one or two days a week of learning. And you just, the more you do something, the, the faster you're going to learn it. So um, I'm I'm glad that I started out as a full-time farmer because it definitely made the learning go faster. Um, but at, at the same time, I'm really happy to be part-time farming now because I think that it's a really great
0: balance for me. I think it's an interesting comment about part-time farming, and it, it seems obvious if you if you step back. But it's it's going to have a, a slower iteration cycle, if you will. You know, you're you're just not going to learn as fast. I mean, the more the more you dig in and the more days a week that you dig in and the more weeks of the year that you dig in, the the faster you're going to learn about farming and be in a position to, to improve your operation.
1: Yeah, and, and the flip side of that is you do have to balance that because at some point when you just get so exhausted, you're not learning anymore. You're, you're just, you know, spending all of your energy trying to keep your head above the water. Um, so you can push that too far. Um, there's only so many hours in the day that, you know, of effective learning. Um, but yeah, absolutely the, 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 you know, if you're only doing it two days a week as opposed to doing it five days a week, you know, it's probably going to take you twice as long or, or maybe even more, um, to get some of these lessons. And so I think one of the things that made it possible for me to do part-time farming and to do it really effectively right off the bat was having um, been completely immersed in it for over a decade at that point and having explored a lot of options and looked at a lot of different farming systems um, and thinking through very clearly, okay, these are all the things that I really have to concentrate on and then I'm going to have to – and these are the places that I can, you know, essentially take shortcuts or make compromises that aren't going to kill the business um and maybe wouldn't be the way that I would do it if I were doing it full time but are going to be they're going to end up okay they're going to they're going to turn out alright in the end
0: I want you to tell me about that cuz that's really interesting one of the things that's that's come up again and again I feel like in the farmer to farmer podcast or maybe it's just cuz I I had the the complete and utter failure to set any limits on my farm um regarding how much I was going to work is is people setting some limits and putting in, putting up some boundaries. But I think once you do that, you do need some shortcuts. You do need to have some ways of deciding what you're going to, what you're going to cut, what you're going to be okay with not getting done. Because, uh, you know, when you work 16 hour days, you're not making choices. You're just putting your nose to the grindstone, even if you don't get stuff done. But if you say, Hey, I'm going to have a part-time farm. I'm going to work two days a week. All of a sudden you're having to make some decisions.
1: Yeah. And I think that, you know, part of that is is the same thing with planning. So uh, one of the ways that I look at it is everybody is doing planning, whether they say they're doing planning or not, and they're just doing planning in different ways. So uh, I'm a planner who likes to have things planned out in advance, and then I'll make tweaks at the last minute. I'll change things around at the last minute, but I want to have a plan in place before I go into doing something. On the other end of the spectrum, I see folks who they say, oh, I'm not going to make a plan. That's just you know, uh, that's too much trouble. It takes too much time. All that kind of stuff." But they're making the same decisions I'm making. They're just making them at the last minute. Um, and I, I think with enough experience um, you know, over time, people get really, really good at knowing what the right decision is to make at any particular moment. Um, but the advantage to doing the planning up front is that You get practice rounds. Essentially, you can you can make a set of decisions and kind of carry those through uh, and and basically make a dry run at something, and then realize, oh, that might not have been the right decision. Um, And when you don't have a lot of experience, doing those dry runs points out those mistakes in your decisions a lot faster, and so it allows you a second chance before you actually have to go and do something. And so with a with the part time farming, um, you don't have as many days in the week, obviously. And so, uh, you, you really, you know, any decision that you screw up on makes, it just amplifies that, you know, whatever problem is going to come out of that mistake, um, because there's no time to recover from it. Um, so I think, you know, being a planner up front is, is uh what you kind of have to do, and setting the limits i mean everybody similarly everybody sets some limit for themselves, some people set the limit as you know how many hours can I stay awake during the week and actually do something physical, and then you know basically when they fall asleep in in their bowl of cereal at eleven o'clock at night, you know that's their limit and I've just said uh and and even before I started part time farming. Um, you know, I I was very clear about. Okay, we're we're going to start the workday at this particular time, and we're going to end the workday at this particular time, um, and just acknowledge that there's always going to be more work to do, um, but we are only going to work this many hours in order to do that. And if that's not enough hours, we either have to figure out a way to do it more efficiently or we need to hire more people to to work with us. Um, And if we can't afford to hire more people to work with us and there's still more work and we can't do it more efficiently, then we shouldn't be farming because uh, it's not sustainable. Um, At least it wasn't sustainable for me to work more hours than kind of the hours that we set. So I've always um, been pretty good about setting the limits for myself and kind of doing that consciously as opposed to um, doing it unconsciously and just having something, you know, something else set the limit. There's a lot of compromises that, that I have to make as a part-time farmer. Um, so, you know, <clears throat> some of it is just letting go of control. Um, in fact, I'd say a lot of it is letting go of control and leaving the crops out there to just do what they're going to do um, and not feeling like I have to check on them all the time. and The reality is that, you know, plants whole uh, goal in life is to grow (laughs) and then ultimately, you know, if it's an annual to flower and set seed. Um, And so they're going to do everything they can in order to do that. And so I just need to set them up uh, in order for them to be able to do that. It doesn't mean that I have to be there every single day holding their hand. It just means that I have to have everything set in place for them. So I have to, I have to water at the right time. I have to give them the right fertility up front. Um, and then um, I need to, you know, go in there and harvest them at the right times in order for the market to be satisfied. Um, but it doesn't require being there every single day. Seedlings are, in the, in the propagation house, It's probably the biggest compromise. And really, automation is what makes that possible. And, and relying on automation heavily. And my initial experiences with automation in greenhouses were not good. So when I was, um, on, when I was apprenticing uh, with, with a fantastic farmer, we ran a greenhouse on some battery timers. It was, just a, it was a pretty small greenhouse. Um, and we were running the irrigation on battery timers, and we got busy. And normally we were checking in on those battery timers every day. Um, but there was a week during the summer where we got busy and we weren't in the greenhouse for two or three days. And that happened to be the time when the battery failed. Uh-huh. And, uh, and we, we lost some plants. We didn't lose everything, but we, we lost some plants in that greenhouse. And after that, I was kind of like, uh, oh, we're not doing this anymore. You know, I'm never going to do that again. I'm always going to be in the greenhouse every single day. But when I decided to do the part-time farm, there wasn't any way that that was going to happen. And so my initial thought was, well, I'm just going to direct feed everything, because then I don't have to take care of a greenhouse. And I did that for one season, and it just didn't, it didn't give me the results that I I wanted. Um, and so um, the next season, we had access to a propagation house and a greenhouse, and I put in battery timers, and I didn't have, I didn't have a whole lot of backup, but I did. I, I did I was very careful about the timers that I chose and you know, kind of setting up the system so that I thought that it would be um, pretty stable. And um, I would have to check the, I would have to readjust the timers because things would be getting a little bit too wet or a little bit too dry by the time I came back three or three days later. Um, but we always got decent seedlings out of it and for five out of the seven days a week, I wasn't doing anything. I, you know, the battery timers were taking care of it, and the automatic uh, vent openers were taking care of, of uh, venting. And um, other than that, everything was fine. So it it was it was nice to see that that actually worked. And I did that for three seasons without any problem at all. And I've been totally sold on the automatic water ever since.
0: It's interesting because that's a very different experience than I've had with automatic watering systems. I've seen on multiple farms who've installed those they it's been the source of extreme overwatering because people aren't paying attention and aren't managing. So it's it's really interesting to me what you're saying about about being able to make those adjustments on just 2 days a week.
1: You do you absolutely that's the thing is you can't buy an automatic system and then expect it to just take care of itself forever. <laughs> I was tweaking it every single day I was there. So two days a week, I'm tweaking the automatic system and I'm checking on it and I'm evaluating how it did for the last two or three days or four days. Um, And then I'm making changes in order to make that work and I'm looking at what the weather is going to be coming up. Um, And, you know, I'm constantly readjusting that on those two days a week. But I found that with two days a week, I could do that, um, and and it worked out fine. Um, and so I I think that part of the problem with a lot of the automatic systems is people put it in and then they just want to forget about it, and they don't ever go back and check. And that's one of the things also with planning and record keeping is you can't just make the plan and then it's like okay the plan's done and we're all set and this is what we're going to do. Um, you actually have to continuously check back with that plan and make sure that the plan that you have is still the right plan, and you're, and I'm constantly making tweaks to the plan. And when I'm collecting data, it's not like you collect the data and then that's done. You're going back and you're looking at that data and you're analyzing it, you're putting it into the, to the, um, to the next plan you're going back a year or two later and you're kind of looking back at two or three years worth of data and you're saying, Oh, does the data that I'm getting right now match that other data? So all these things take a lot of attention and constant consistent attention. I I shouldn't say constant attention because you don't have to be paying attention, you know, every hour of every day, but consistently coming back to them and and paying attention. And I think where people get in trouble is when they, they think, Oh, I can just put down the money, I'm gonna buy this and then I'm done with it and it'll take care of itself from there.
0: All right, with that, we're going to stop here, take a break, and get a quick word from our sponsors, and then we'll be right back with Josh Bolt. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is made possible through the perennial support provided by Vermont Compost Company, makers of Fort B and Fort Light potting mixes. Vermont compost potting soils are a really special product, and I mean that. I used Vermont Compost Fort B as a blocking mix and potting soil for over 12 years on my farm, and we grew great transplants with it, and I mean really great transplants year after year, and we save time, money, and management hassles compared to mixing our own. At a time in the organic movement when we're seeing more and more companies jumping on the organic bandwagon, Vermont Compost is a reminder of the art and the craft of making a great organic potting soil. One thing I have always appreciated about Vermont Compost is their ability to put out a consistent product year after year, and in something that's subject to as many variables as market farming, it's nice to have something you can count on. VermontCompost.com. Perennial support is also provided by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are often mistaken for just a rototiller, but it is truly a superior piece of farming equipment. Engineered and built in Italy where small farms are a way of life, BCS tractors are built to standards of quality and durability expected of real agricultural equipment. The kind of dependability every farm needs. I've worked with BCS tractors for over 24 years and I wouldn't consider anything else for my small tractor needs. And I'm not the only fan. More than 1.5 million people in 50 countries have discovered the advantages of owning Europe's most popular two-wheel tractor. And these really are small tractors with the kinds of features found on their four-wheeled cousins and a wide array of equipment. Power hose, rotary plows, flail mowers, snow throwers, sickle bar mowers, chiffers, log splitters, oh and did I mention rototillers? And more. Check out bcsamerica.com to see photos and videos of BCS in action. bcsamerica.com. And we're back with Josh Volk, the author of the book Compact Farms, which just came out, published by Story Publishing. Josh, um, before we went on break, we were talking about record keeping. You were talking about the importance of of going back and not just using the records as a place to write things down, but to circle back and actually look at them and make decisions based on those records. And I know that's something that people have have. I think that a lot of people have a hard time doing, you know, I mean, A, it's hard to find the time. And B, sometimes with your records, that information is kind of diffuse. So, how have you seen farmers be successful in going about getting those records back in front of them, so that they actually are analyzing them?
1: Yeah. So, well, I'll just talk about the way that I use them, and and I am constantly looking for new and better ways to do it. Um, so, I, I, I don't think the way that I'm doing it is is perfect by any means, um, but I do I, I am able to. To use a lot of the records that I keep, and I'm careful. Also, the other thing I'm constantly kind of evaluating is what records am I keeping, and are these records actually going to be useful in the future? Um, because in the past, there's some things that I've kept, and I've realized, you know, after a period of time, I I never go back and look at that, and so that's just not going to be useful. Like I used to keep track of how many inches it rained, and I never went back and looked at it. And most, you know, for the most part, that information was uh, available through the weather service you know close enough if I ever did want to go back and use it um, but that ended up being a record that I never used and so I never I just stopped following that record um, but <clears throat> I use records in a couple of different ways, and my record keeping methods are actually pretty simple and actually last summer I started I, I took a clue from you and I started uh, using. Uh, an index card in my pocket, um, but I use it a little bit different than I think the way that you described. Uh, we talked about this uh, about actually just about a year ago now, um, how you were using index cards for record keeping, and I, I took notes on that. And, um, and so my record keeping system is very closely tied to my planning system. So typically what I'm doing is I'm creating a plan and then that plan is getting printed out on paper, or um, I actually even write out, uh, uh, We I make the plan kind of on week-to-week basis. So it's like uh, when I plan in November, I'm saying, what am I going to do on the week of, and, and I use Monday dates for everything. So it's like, what am I going to do on the week of April the uh, Monday this year, is, but April 10th, for example. And then uh, if I have an April 10th date, that just means sometime in that week it's going to happen. So I make the plan out, and then on paper, there's kind of uh, blank spaces for the plan on that week where it's like, okay, now fill in what actually happened on that week or when uh, something actually happened. And so that then goes back, the record that it happened and how it happened goes back into the plan from the previous season. And then when I'm making my plan for the following season, I basically go back to the plan from the previous season and I see what changes were made or what changes weren't made. And I can then move that into the next plan. Um, So there's a lot of that happening. And those records, what I actually found was most convenient was I like to write out my plan for the week in uh, shorthand I've developed for myself on the index card. And I carry that index card around with me for reference. And then I will make occasional notes on the on the index card, um, but a lot of times it's actually easier for me to make a note in the just the note um, app that comes with my iPhone, um, and I keep that. And I basically have the first I put the date first, and then I put kind of what the topic on the note is. So if it's cultivation or if it's a harvest note, I'll put that right on the top line um, because that's the one that shows up. Um, you know, kind of as the the subject when I'm going back through the notes, right? Um, and then and then I keep you know just shorthand notes in those notes on the on the phone, and then those automatically you know through the cloud go to my computer, so I can consolidate those into one spot every week or two weeks or three weeks. Um, so usually I try to do it once a week, but a lot of times it, it takes me, uh, you know, to be realistic. Sometimes it takes me a few months to get back to consolidating the notes. Um, and I, I'm, I'm very conscious when I'm writing those notes to myself that they are, I need to write them in a way that somebody else essentially could read them. Because if I don't get to them for two or three months, uh, I essentially am somebody else. I'm not going to remember what I meant. So I can use a shorthand, but it has to be a shorthand that I'm going to be able to read. <laughs>
0: as, as somebody who's always had a problem with having legible handwriting, I love that because, you know, I'm the same way. I can I can read my note. I mean, just even not even talking shorthand, but just I can usually figure out what something that I wrote yesterday says, but something that I wrote three months ago might be a little sketchy.
1: Yeah. And, and that's one that's one of the things that I've learned over time. You know, it's like that the, the older I get, the more I realize that uh, you know, I'm not gonna remember things that I thought that I was gonna remember. And probably to some extent because I write things down, I let myself forget those things. But I think that's a great thing because I think that, you know, that helps clear up my, my mind for other things. So that's that's my story.
0: When you say you're using a shorthand system, um again, I don't get the impression that you're using like a shorthand alphabet, but you're using some notations that mean something to you and are consistently meaningful to you to write things down without having to write out all of the words. I seeded the carrots today using whole 53 right. on the cedar.
1: Right. So one of, one of the, um, one of the most useful record keeping systems that I have, and I, I actually have written an article about this in growing for market. And then that article is now on uh, my website, joshfolk.com. Um, is maps in space and time. And it, 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 sounds fancy. And I, and I think other people use the same system, um, and have just come up with it independently. Um, but, um, basically it's a list of all the beds. Um, so it's a, I use Excel as a, as a, basically as a editable graph paper. Um, and then I print out those Excel sheets. But down the left hand side, it's basically the bed numbers. When I was doing uh slow hand farm uh lots of different things would go into the same bed so i actually had the beds kind of broken up into five foot chunks so it was like the first five feet of bed one the second five feet of bed one the third five feet of bed one but basically just a line for every block planting block um at a particular spot and then across the top is the wheat So there's basically a small square for every single week for every single spot. Um, And then my shorthand within that is things like uh, I write an H for weeks. that I'll write the crop name in on the week that it's planted. Um, And that's my shorthand that tells me this crop got planted on this particular week. Um, And usually I'm writing in the variety name. And usually I know what the variety name is. If If I have the variety name and I know, where it is in the field, even though some varieties names are the same from, you know, one crop type to another. Um, But if I have that variety name in a particular place, then I know, okay, that was lettuce. You know, Nevada, that's a lettuce. I know that's a lettuce, and it's in the lettuce field. So, obviously that was my lettuce. And that was planted on that particular week. So, I don't have to do anything there except for write Nevada on that particular week, and I know that that was planted on that particular week. And then, the week that it gets harvested, I'll write an eight. And that just means that that was harvested in that particular week. And that's actually one of the most useful notes that I, that I make and I use consistently is how many weeks to harvest. Um, and, how, and with lettuce is a great example because lettuce is a different number of weeks to harvest for the same variety depending on what time of year it is. So um, some, in the very peak of the season, It's as little as four to five weeks on some varieties for us to full head lettuce from transplanting. Um, But on the shoulder seasons, it can be that same variety could be uh, seven or eight weeks. And so um, when I keep these maps and I have the the planting week and the harvest week um, in the map, then I can go back and really quickly just count squares. And is that four squares or seven squares or eight squares to harvest? Um, and I can see, you know, when do I need to plant the lettuce next year in order to get the harvest on a particular date? Um, and then I've got a lot of other le- little one letter because those squares aren't very big. I, I pretty much am limited to one letter in the square. <laughs> so, um, you know, for cultivation, I'll, I'll write a C, uh, for tillage, I'll write a C, for mowing, I'll write an M. Um, and sometimes the letters overlap, but, um, uh, based on where the letter is, I'll just you know what that what that means.
0: I really like that. That sounds like a really slick system. Um and again I love I love the, the kind of the interplay there that you've got going on between the, the computer based system and the paper based system.
1: Yeah, the computer is great for me in the off season and um uh it really for me it really speeds up and Excel has become this extension of, you know, kind of the way that I um, plan and kind of play with where things can go in the field and how long things are going to take and using just some really simple formulas and some spreadsheets um, and and even just, you know, using it as gra- editable graph paper. Um, uh, it's been a really great system for me. But once I'm out in the field during the season, I don't find the computer useful at all. Um, I find it a real impediment um, so the iPhone actually is starting to change that a little bit for me because I am starting to use notes in the iPhone, and I'm definitely starting to use pictures to take a lot of records. So I'll take photos of – I try to remember to take photos of things, not so much because I think that it's beautiful or whatever, but just because I want a record of when it was. And it's date and time stamped. so you kind of get that this is what this particular thing looked like at this particular time. Um, and I want to start doing more of that. So th- that's maybe how the computer is coming in, in the field. But up to this point, really what I found is paper is what's, what's most convenient when I'm in the packing shed or when I'm out, even when I'm out in the field doing feeding or any of those kinds of things. And then it's much easier for me to have a piece of paper next to my computer and kind of be looking at the records from the paper and, um, and I know that that piece of paper is from a particular time and that it hasn't been edited because you can't obviously change things the way you can change them on a computer without realizing that you change them on paper.
0: And so, Josh, we're going to make sure that we get those links available on the show notes page for this episode on the FarmerDepartmentPodcast.com website so that, you know, so that people can actually take a deeper dive into the concepts that you're talking about and how you're using those.
1: Yeah, I think I think it'll make a lot more sense if people if people take a
0: look on this online. And I want to take a couple minutes here to talk about Slow Hand Farm and and the fact that it's interesting to me that that was a farm that you were running without any fossil fuels. And so tell me a little bit about what that looked like cuz I I mean I did that on on my very first uh piece of land that I worked out at East Springs College in in 1990 and It was a lot of work.
1: Yeah. You know, uh, one of the things that I'm realizing about myself is uh, process is really important to me. And so, you know, the end product on a farm has to be important also because that's what you're selling. Um, But the process of getting to that end product, how I'm doing it is also important to me um, just in terms of I, you know, there's I I'm pretty good at tractors. Um, and I'm kind of known as a tool guy. And so a lot of people come to me for tractor advice and i spent a lot of years on tractor farms. Um, but I, and there's aspects of tractors that I enjoy, but sitting on tractors for long periods of time and the noise and the dust, uh, and you know, the, the fumes, I don't, I don't enjoy that part of it. Um, and so I really love, uh, working with the digging fork and, and doing physical work. Um, and I do enjoy that part of it. So I was willing to take a lot of extra time. Basically, the difference uh, between what I was doing and doing it with a tractor or a BCS, you know, two-wheel tractor, is that I had much, much higher bed preparation expenses Um everything else is pretty similar. And I think, you know, especially on a lot of very, very small farms, really all you're using the tractor for is mowing and filling. Um, so you're not using it for planting. You're not using it for harvesting. You're not, you might not even be using it for cultivating. Um, uh, so the, the big difference is in how long it takes to prepare a bed. And I I think the difference in, bed preparation time was something like the difference between taking five minutes to prepare a bed and taking an hour to prepare a bed Um, so uh, I would hand fork uh, every bed and I wasn't double digging I did double dig a few beds and then realized I just didn't have the time to do it Um, but I would hand fork every bed and then uh, depending on the soil conditions um, I had two or three different forks um, that I was rotating through and, you know, when you're doing things by hand, having the right tool for the situation, you know, you really notice the differences in how long and how much energy it takes. And so I also had, uh, three or three different rakes. And then I had a couple, I had this one kind of, um, it's a little bit like a wheel hoe. Johnny's is actually selling a version of them now. Um, where it's got kind of a cage roller on the front with some teeth in it and that almost works a little bit like a filter in terms of getting the surface, uh, tilled up and a little bit more finely broken up. So that was the bed preparation. And then everything else was very similar to, um, the way I would do it on other farms where, uh, I was hand transplanting. I was using, uh, earthway push seeder. I was seeding some stuff just by hand. Um, I also had a, a six row feeder that I was using. Um, uh, I was, uh, using hose to do almost all the cultivation. I did almost no hand weeding, uh, going at the right time. You can get away with little to no hand weeding. I was, uh, irrigating both the strip and overhead, but my overhead irrigation was kind of small micro sprinklers that are more designed for, um, landscapes. And then um, uh, harvest those hand harvest and pack things up and, uh, you know, in a barn and little spray down table. So, you know, very, very similar techniques to what you would do on another farm um, with the exception of that bed preparation. And that the bed preparation and mowing around the edge, those are the two things that took a lot of time.
0: And why did you choose to continue to do things that way. Yeah, it was it was really that process thing. You know, it was like I
1: decided this is what I enjoy. This is the way that I enjoy doing it. And so I'm willing to take a pay cut, which essentially is what it was. I'm willing to take a pay cut in order to do it um, all by hand. And in some ways, I had also set it up where, I, you know, by being part-time and by being very small, um, it was... <laughs> And not having access to a tractor because there wasn't a tractor available to me already, um, buying a tractor would have forced me to get bigger in order to uh, maximize the the use of that tractor to really make that tractor pay off, and I didn't want to get bigger so um, so all those things kind of played in together to make it a little bit of an easier choice that way. And then I did some things that, you know, kind of on the sales and marketing end, I did some things to take advantage of what I was already doing on, you know, in terms of hand scale um, and to, you know, carve out my own little niche there that was different from what other folks were doing. And so, you know, I was able to capitalize on that a little bit in the marketing end of the
0: Was that actually something that people cared about in the marketplace?
1: They didn't care necessarily that I was doing it by hand, <clears throat> um, but what what I did that was kind of unique, and I hadn't seen anybody else do this, was um, because I was so small, I wasn't growing, I, and because I was so small, and because I was doing things by hand, I really had to just concentrate on um, what <clears throat> uh, what crop would. Uh, basically produce enough on a small space. So there were a lot of things that I didn't, I didn't grow uh winter squash, for example, and I, I grew very few potatoes. Um, and, and I concentrated on growing things that were more the type of thing that you would get out of a garden and less the kind of thing that you would see on a production farm, um, even a small scale production farm. So things that were very delicate um, and, um, maybe things that weren't as even in terms of their maturity or their ripeness, but had, uh, unique features or that had interesting backstories to them. So I really concentrated on those kinds of things. And then I designed a CSA share that I, I called a sampler share or an individual share. Um, and so, um, what I had seen working on other CSAs was that a lot of people felt like they were getting too many vegetables and then they felt guilty about not using all those vegetables. And a lot of people would split shares with other friends and then, you know, then people would be asking us, so oh, can you find somebody to split a share with us because the shares are too big. And so I um, designed a share that was too small to split. I mean, you just couldn't, you know, I, I could sit down and eat, a share in one to two meals. And I I eat a lot of vegetables, so, you know, maybe that's not for everybody, but it really wasn't a very big share. But what it allowed was for people who just wanted to be involved with CSA, but didn't want to commit to cooking from scratch five nights a week or seven nights a week just to go through all the vegetables or finding two or three other families to split with. And who were individuals who maybe were students or maybe were older people, um, or just single people. Um, they had access to CSA then in a way that they that they wouldn't have before. Or people who wanted to also shop at the farmers market and um, you know buy from their other favorite farmers and not just have one farmer be their, uh, their source of food. So I did these really really small shares with kind of you know very. Special mix of vegetables and then kind of would tell stories around those vegetables also.
0: Were there things that you took then from Slowhand Farm and applied at Holy Neighborhood Farm?
1: You know, I'll always carry a certain number of varieties with me um, and, uh, you know, have preference for those varieties. But, uh, and, and there's, you know, li- the timing on cultivation, you know, things like that that are pretty universal um stepping into Callie neighborhood farm um for me has been another you know kind of exercise in stepping back a little bit and really letting that as much as I can you know say you know listen this is your operation i'm coming in to help you out i'm going to make suggestions i'm going to um you know when you ask for it I'll, I'll i'll give my input um but really trying not to to push a lot of things so there's a, there's you know a lot of little tools and and tricks that that i've learned from all the different farms that I've worked on that, you know, when I see something that fits into a particular spot or that the system isn't as well developed as maybe it could be at Cully, um, I'll make those suggestions or if Matt's looking for a different way to do something. But it, it's really more his operation and I feel like I'm just, you know, I, I'm there as the consultant in some ways and the um, and hired help to
0: get things done.
1: Now, I, the other thing I'll, I'll say about Matt is, i I largely trained Matt at Skyline Farm, so <laughs> you know even though it's his take on it, uh a lot of the systems that he uses are systems that he got from Skyline Farm, which are systems that I put in place at Skyline Farm so you know there's there's overlap there too and because we had both worked on the those same systems and he had worked with me before, it was really easy to drop into that situation.
0: He was already fully indoctrinated into the Josh Volk exactly, way of doing
1: that. He's made a lot of changes to the systems and kind of modified that over time. And he's always looking at new ways to do, to do stuff as well.
0: With that, I think it's time to turn to our lightning round. We're going to get a quick word from one more sponsor, and then we'll be right back with Josh Volk. This week's lightning round is brought to you by Farm Commons. Strong, resilient, sustainable farm businesses are built on a solid legal foundation. Geared for the direct consumer and organic producer, Farm Commons free legal guides and tutorials provide a practical and realistic resource for farmers. In my consulting work, I often need to deepen my understanding of the ins and outs of the legal side of things, and Farm Commons is always, and that's not an exaggeration, the first place I turn. Whether I'm looking for information on building a legally resilient CSA program, the ins and outs of paying in-kind wages, or just trying to get a better general understanding of how to work with regulators, Farm Commons boils that information down to the nuts and bolts of what you really need to know without having to wade through the regulations yourself. Visit farmcommons.org to access a wealth of information about this very important part of your farm business. All right, and we're back for the lightning round. Josh, what's your favorite tool on the farm?
1: I have listened to every single episode of the Farmer Farmer podcast that you've put out, and usually uh, I do it on my commute to the farm. I ride my bike back and forth to the farm. And uh, I can get through about half the podcast on my way to the farm, and then I get through the other half on my way home. And uh, the lightning round, I should be completely prepared for this question, and I'm not prepared for it at all. And I think that I'm not going to uh, back out, but just off the top of the head, the one that's popping to mind is um, actually a cart that I have developed. The, The garden cart, I think, is an absolutely fantastic cart. Um, really simple design and, you know, super, super utilitarian. Um, but I always felt like there were a few things about it that I could do better. And so we had a cart that had been used for about, you know, uh, probably more than a decade on this one farm and just totally abused. Uh, so when I was working at South Island Organics and it finally fell apart and the wheels were still salvageable and the axle was still salvageable. Um, And I had some scrap metal, so I decided I was going to build this other cart. Um, And basically what I did was I um, bumped the wheels out so that they fit into our pathways because our beds were four-foot centers. And the garden cart, I think, is probably on about a, I don't know, it's a 30-some-inch center. Um, And then I always wanted the cart to be able to roll over the bed, so I I bumped the uh, bed of the cart up higher and then the handle was always too low, so I made the handle the right height for me, Um, and I made it so that when you pick up the handle, uh, the bed stays flat. It doesn't skip as much, so stuff doesn't all slide off the back end of the cart, Um, and I've worked on refining and developing that cart for a number of years now, and I've uh, I, for a little bit, I had, I had them available for other people to buy. The plans for them are actually up online at farmhandcarts.com. Um, and my plan is to actually start making them available again this year if I can find another fabricator to work with. So I'd say that, that hand cart has been my favorite tool. And then it's got a lot of add-ons. Like we use it to, to mark the beds out also. So there's a little attachment that rolls over and, and marks out the bed, the, uh, the planting lines and, also out the inline spacing and does that all at once. So it, it doubles as kind of a tool carrier. Um, so you can take the, the box from the cart off or the flatbed from the cart off and you can pop tools on it as well.
0: One of the things that I think is really cool is, is how the platform is completely changeable. You know, that, that idea, right? You can put some tools on it, you can put a platform on it. Um, and it's got a lot of space and that, and the fact that it fits over the bed uh, on a, on bed sizes that are in kind of more standard use on farms than what the what the old style garden carts would fit. It's really cool. Cool.
1: Yeah, and and actually uh, a friend of mine when I so originally I was just building two wheel versions and then a friend of mine uh, wanted one and and she said but, uh, you know but we want a we want a single wheel one can you build a single wheel one so that we can just go down you know in between trellising or something like that so. Uh, using pretty much the same parts, just a little bit of modification, We built a single wheel one. And then shortly after that, and I had a, I had a two wheel one for myself and I built her that single wheel one. She came back to me and she was like, you know, the crew's not really using the single wheel one, but I think they would like a double wheel one. So I traded her my double wheel one for the single wheel one. We just happened to have the uh, very similar bed spacing. And, uh, uh, I the last season I used that single wheel one every single harvest and it's uh, it's been fantastic so it works really well as a single wheel cart as well you know kind of same geometry just a little different format
0: very cool now we we didn't talk a lot about your consulting business Josh but but you do consulting for farms uh, what one thing could your clients do to make their farms better
1: uh, you know hire a consultant right away. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. no, that, that's that's my joke <laughs> no i no, i the consulting thing for me is a bit of a catch all phrase and um it's really unique from farm to farm. I think that the one thing that a lot of people who are starting out that um that I talk with uh the one thing that they could do uh other than you know going to a consultant is really um working working on networking with the farming community um their immediate farming community and and uh and for me that's been invaluable is having relationships with other farmers going getting to go and see other farmers uh farms um having connections where I you know I can call up or I can email um individual farmers that I know or you know even lists of farmers that I'm on um and ask questions, and get resources, and get answers, and um, so I think you know the thing that I would tell folks uh, is really de- developing those networks is is going to be the best way to learn. And you know it's it's basically free. I mean, it it costs some time and and uh, and some energy, but uh, but it doesn't cost money to to develop those networks and. Um, and, and there is a, there are a lot of great farmers out there and, and, uh, and they're not just great farmers, they're they're really great people too. So, um, that's, that's the thing I would tell people.
0: What's your favorite crop to grow? Oh
1: man, you know, I think people have said it before, but it's like picking your favorite kid probably. And I don't have kids, so I don't know if that's a, a fair comparison, but, um, Uh, I do enjoy, there's a couple of crops that I'm working on right now in terms of doing a little bit of uh, seed selection and that kind of thing, and uh, corn beans and squash, even though they're really not very appropriate for uh, small scale, um, that's one that I've had a lot of fun growing in the last uh, handful of years, and um, uh, collecting a lot of dry bean varieties and and dry corn varieties, and uh, a couple of dry corn varieties, and, and hard squash, so. You know, but I what I love growing and I love growing lettuce. I can't fix this one. Thing.
0: And if you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would it be?
1: Uh, I think I I think I'd tell myself to be more patient. Um, and uh, to realize that it was going to take me longer to understand. One of the I I don't think i really have any regrets about anything but one of the decisions that i do wonder about is uh the farmer that i apprenticed with his wonderful guy andy scott no longer with us unfortunately but um andy offered me a second season on the farm and i was anxious to to see another farm so i left and and uh went worked on another farm and and that ended up working out great but i do wonder from time to time what would have happened if i'd stuck around for another season and uh I thought I had learned everything I was going to learn from Andy in one season. And in retrospect, I, I hadn't learned a fraction of it, I'm sure.
0: So
1: um, I would tell myself to be more patient.
0: Being young hard, isn't it?
1: <laughs> you know, I, 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 it would be fun to go back and do it again, knowing everything I know now. But uh, obviously not going to happen.
0: <laughs> Josh, thank you so much for being on the Farmer to Farmer podcast today.
1: Oh, I really appreciate you having me. I, I, I'm a huge fan of the, the podcast. really love what you're doing. So it's great to be able to give back a little.
0: All right. So wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 106 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast. And you can find the notes for the show at farmertofarmerpodcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for Volk. That's a V-O-L-K. That was easy. The transcript for this episode is brought to you by Earth Tools, offering the most complete selection of Walk Behind Farming Equipment and High Quality Garden Tools in North America, and by growing for market where you can get 20% off your subscription with the code PODCAST at checkout. You can get the show notes for every Farmer to Farmer podcast in your inbox by signing up for my email newsletter at farmertofarmerpodcast.com. Also, please head on over to iTunes and leave us a review if you're enjoying the show. Talk to us in the show notes or tell your friends on Facebook. We're at Purple Pitchfork on Facebook. And hey, When you talk to our sponsors, please let them know how much you appreciate their support of a resource that you value. We couldn't do it without them. You can support the show directly by going to farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash donate. I'm working to make the best farming podcast in the world and you can help. Finally, please let me know who you would like to hear from on the show through the suggestions form at farmertofarmerpodcast.com. I'll do my best to get them on the show. Thank you for listening. Be safe out there and keep the tractor running.